So I thought I'd start tonight with a, a short personal story just from today, um, and then sort of wind my way into this question about rebirth. And it's interesting because when I looked at the title again, I, this probably isn't such a big question for many people. Um, you know, what happens when you die really captures this question as well, but we had to create four questions <laughs> for four weeks. <laughs> but, anyway, marketing gone. Um, <laughs> so you probably haven't got a burning question of what is rebirth, but anyway, um, let's see whether we can explore it. So today I was in hospital again. My partner, for want of a better word, has had this sort of health crisis, some kind of health crisis. And um, we went up to um, see the consultant. And um, it's very, I, I, used to, I used to be a nurse, so I, I know hospitals relatively well. Um, and as soon as you step into a hospital, you step into a whole world. If you can almost forget, once you're in that world, it is like a complete world. You know, the trolley comes round, and the drugs go round, and you can start to sort of forget another world. And it's a world where you really see how vulnerable we are. You know, um, there's a slight comic moment this morning as well because someone said, uh, Susan Smith. And two people said yes. <laughs> there was actually two Susan Smiths in the room. Um, and this woman said, I've never had that before. Um, <laughs> but it's like, it was like a name for every woman, you know, Susan, how are you? Smith. You know, it's like, anyway, there we go. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you really, when you go to, even, even just to visit a hospital again, just to go, you know, see a consultant, you, golly, you really see how fragile we are. You know, you know, you suddenly are in a world where this human being is a fragile, perilous matter. Uh, and you feel it, don't you? Uh, I don't know if you, you, you sort of feel it, you know, that somebody was wheeled in a bed and, you know, he is so fragile. And then I saw somebody go in and, you know, he was really fragile, and then you feel see the nurses how much work there is, and you this the poor beleaguered NHS where you sort of feel it being drained of funds or funds almost every day you go. But I, I'm always struck by just how fragile we are, especially when you're going with someone you know like your own partner who's you know, in a lot of pain, and just how fragile we are. And as soon as for me, as soon as I enter into that space. I sort of think, of course, you know, what was I thinking about? I'd forgotten again how how fragile this being human is. Um, you know, and the, the, there are all these clinics, and they're just full of people, all in some kind of fragile place. You know? um, and for me, what that makes me do, and I hope it makes you do, is start to ask those questions again. The questions that, if we're not careful, we too easily put aside to get our emails done or get our latte you know our you know our mocha latte you know with oat milk done exactly as we like you know our jungle smoothie um you know so we we all do it we we put the great questions away every day all you need to do is go to a hospital and they they confront you and they're, they're as they're as vivid and as sharp and as in a way frankly grim as they ever have been you know um they confront you with the fragility of your life. Yeah. So for me, that's for me where the big questions come from. Uh, we, we're calling these four big questions, and that's where these big questions come from. For me, they're, they're not coming from a philosophical place. Um, I am a bit interested in philosophy, but I was saying last week I read it with at times with great delight, 
and then forget it completely, but say, yeah, it was great, and have nothing to say about it intelligently. Um, luckily, I, we've been talking in this last six months on the Nature of Mind project. Uh, we've been talking to philosophers and psychologists and psychiatrists and thinkers about the nature of mind. So that was my first reflection. Just, just remember that these questions come from our human fragility, which we forget. Yeah, we constantly forget. Um, we forget our life can turn on a sixpence. Uh, we really, really do. Um, I do, and you do. And um, let's try and remember before we have to remember. You know, yeah, that, in, a, in a way, that's, that's what the Buddhist center, Buddhist center is here for, is let's remember before we're forced to remember. Yeah? Because we won't be equipped if we're just forced to remember. We need to remember now and start to act appropriately. Yeah? But the other thing that really struck me, we went to see this consultant. He was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Um, he was like a kind of um, engineer, but an engineer of bodies. And it really struck me about actually what compassion is. It's mainly something you do, it's not something you feel. He was just like, he, he, he had this integral knowledge. You can see that he'd been, he'd been a consultant, he'd been meeting all of these people for many, many years. And he had this, we've already seen two, two doctors, um, including a joint specialist, and Suddenly here we were with someone who knew things, but in an integral way. He'd, he'd, he'd learnt a lot, he'd seen a lot. Also, he presumably got things wrong a lot, because how do you learn without getting things wrong? He'd stuck it through, he'd made mistakes, I'm sure. I didn't ask him that. Um, <laughs> and I was hoping that this wasn't going to be... Uh, uh, but, you know, he's, he was immediately listening and saying, OK, well, it might be that, but it could be this, because sometimes... But he was like this, like engineer, except for instead of an engineer of machines, an engineer of the body. And in those states of extremists, that's what you want. You don't particularly need a bed bedside manner. You don't particularly need, in fact, you don't need touchy-feelingness. What you need is someone who, who will think, look at you, think about it, and has got lots of experience. And it's, it's like gold dust. You know, he didn't Google anything. Um, <laughs> You think, oh, pain, let's just... <laughs> okay, where is it? <laughs> what do you think it is? Which is what every doctor always says to you. <laughs> I think they're told to. And I don't know, I've come to see a doctor. Um, but yeah, I was really struck. And that, what that, I suppose I was thinking about this evening, and what that made me ref reflect on is the value of knowledge itself. And, and, and from that, the, the value of reason yeah, and science. It, when, when you've got pain and when you meet someone who says, yes, you need an urgent MRI, let's do that now, yes, let's do it from that and that and let's get you here again in two weeks. Um, you know, the MRI, I, I, you know, I was, when I was a nurse, there was no such thing or I can't remember them. Um, they're a miracle of science and have, and, you know, have helped a lot of incredible amount of suffering. Um, so one of the things it reminded me of, and we need to keep on remembering this, is, is the value of reason and science. Um, it's got its limitations, but you're not bothered about those limitations when you've got lots of pain and somebody knows how to respond to it and find out what it's caused by. You know, a philosophical question about the value of science suddenly weirdly goes out of the window. Um, so I was really struck again by the value of reason and the value of science. And, it took me back again to something Ian McGilchrist said that he said, 
And I think it's a really important comment. He said there are four paths to truth, and that is science, reason, imagination, and intuition. I was just on a retreat at the weekend, and I said I'd like to add the body to that, but because I think you should never get too far away from the body. I mean an embodied sense, but he probably would include that in imagination and intuition because they're, they're embodied things. Um, and McGilchrist is saying that, um, that those four things should never be separated, that you shouldn't let science go away on its own without imagination and intuition, and the arts shouldn't allow imagination and intuition to go too far away from sciences. Um, but yeah, so I, want, I, I was really struck again by the preeminent value of science and, and of reason, yeah? And we must keep on valuing that, yeah? But what we're exploring in these great questions, um, science may never be able to answer. In fact, Wittgenstein, who's terribly clever, <laughs> he said, um, uh, uh, German-English philosopher, he, he said that when all the possible scientific and philosophical questions have been answered, the essential problems of life remain essentially untouched. Yeah? That, the, that the deep issues, the deep questions, what is life for? Um, what is consciousness? What, how, how am I alive? What am I, does life have intrinsic meaning and purpose? Um, all the deep questions remain un essentially untouched. Yeah? Um, one of the things we're doing in the nature of mind is, is meeting more and more philosophers who are, who are highly critical of materialism. Uh, we've already interviewed Bernardo Castro, and we're going to interview Philip Goff, who's um, a panpsychist, which is sort of having a bit of a comeback, uh, panpsychism. Um, yes, but so I, on one hand, I want to say reason and, and science is absolutely crucial where it applies, yeah? And it applies in the spiritual life, for instance, whatever that is. It applies in all human life. It's very, very important. We mustn't get into this sort of silly dismissing of, of science, or, or, and especially reason, because um, it's very, very dangerous. Um, what you, you definitely don't want people who can't reason. I can tell you that's a very dangerous place to get to. But there are certain things in life in which science will never be able to answer and reason seems to stop short. And the great matter of that, of course, is death itself, yeah. All science can tell you is that, you know, the physical signs of the pulse and so on are, are no longer there, um, they're no longer breathing, so they're dead. You, um, we, we use that word dead as if we know what that means. We actually don't know what that means. Uh, I don't know what it means and you don't know what it means. What we've got when we, when we approach the issue of death uh, is, uh, as I've been saying recently, is a, a, a belief disguised as a fact. We're actually pretty much like Victorian Christians who would have taken God as a, as a fact, not as a belief. People actually thought you were mentally ill if you didn't believe in God. It was just, that is just obviously how things are. And, you know, the natural world was proof of that and there was all this proof. It wasn't thought to be a belief. That's much later. Yeah? We are, our, our idea that after death you... There's nothing, uh, there's just oblivion, and before birth there's nothing, there's just oblivion. Um, that what we are is, a, is, is possibly to do with neural complexity. Uh, the, more, the more complex neurons you have, the more likely you to have consciousness to emerge, and we'll 
come back to this the, the last week and Bernardo Castro with using, as I said last week, the example of LSD, which actually closes down your brain and yet you get more experience. I'm not recommending it, of course, because this is a family <laughs> show. Um, <laughs> uh, please take children out of the room if you're watching. Them. But uh, it actually closes down the brain and you get more experience, not less. Anyway, no, I'm not, that wasn't him suggesting it. It's just saying that that starts to question those things. Or you think of consciousness somehow as some sort of weird freak chemical reaction uh, out of a chaotic and, uh, and basically meaningless universe. And, and no, none of us are, I hope, I hope none of us philosophers, because if you are, as I said last week, leave the room now. Um, <laughs> um, most of us have just sort of taken in these views without really noticing it. Uh, we've just assumed that, yeah, when, when you die, we kind of know what happens when you die, which is nothing happens when you die, and that's the end, and there's no possible communication beyond death. Nothing goes beyond death. The body doesn't, but nothing else does. We haven't thought that out. You see what I mean? I haven't, haven't sat for, mm, yeah, I think that is the most likely thing. We've just kind of imbibed it from the culture that we're in. Yeah. So contrast that with this interview that um, Vadratara did with Carol Bowman. I, was, I particularly wanted us to be in conversation with people who've um, talked, who've studied children who have past life memories. Yeah. Um, actually, the person I particularly want to be in conversation with, and I'm hoping we can do this eventually, is the American writer and uh, psychologist, I think, uh, Jim Tucker, who's done a lot of writing about children with past life memories. There's actually been quite a lot of research in the US, particularly about children who have past life memories. I'm agnostic about it. I didn't, I don't, I've never had, I think I've had one actually past life memory, but Let's, let's draw a curve across that. Uh, wasn't particularly striking, but anyway, I can't think of any other category for it. But um, so she, we, you know, we, we said to her, you know, what what got you interested in children in past life memories? And um, she said, well, it was my son, my my five year old son. Um, so she said, um, you know, we he was he was five. Um, I just was seeing such a dance, son just in the throne, he's five. You know what five is like, it's about that high. <laughs> Big hair, <laughs> full of life, you know, a little five-year-old. Um, and uh, she she'd taken him to a 4th of July, you know, it's America, so she'd taken him to a 4th of July um, firework display. And he, he got completely hysterical at all the sounds. He just got terribly, terribly frightened. And like really kind of beside himself and hysterical. And she didn't make much of it. She, you know, like any parent, you think he's probably had too much sugar. Um, when you have children, you, you, you can really see what sugar does to the human organism. <laughs> they go nuts. Um, and, you know, she's overtired, had too much sugar. And then a few weeks later, she took him swimming in this uh, indoor swimming pool and people were jumping off the board it made a very loud booming noise in this indoor swimming pool. And again, this little boy had a kind of hysterical, frightened fit you know, with this sound. And she was really perplexed because she said he, he was a very sort of courageous little boy, very happy, kind of confident little boy. And she'd never, it never happened before that first time with the firework display. And she said it, it all happened by happenstance. She was at a party with, and she had her son on her lap. And she was talking to somebody at this party, and this, this guy said, oh, I'm a 
hypnotherapist. And he said, oh, yes. And she then got into telling him what had happened with the little boy. So, you know, he was kicking and, and the hypnotherapist, it's a remarkable little story. The hypnotherapist just said um, to the little boy, he said, well, just close your eyes. When, when you remember those loud noises, what do you see? So, you know, just very, very simple question. It wasn't like hypnotherapy. just said, you know, when you, when you think of those loud noises, what do you see? And the little boy said, I remember this is a five-year-old. He said, I'm hiding behind a rock and I've got this long gun. And it's got a knife on the end and they're shooting at me. Yeah. And uh, the hypnotherapist just said to him, um, OK, so what do you see next? And he said, they've sh shot me in the wrist. And, it's, and it, you know, they've shot me in the wrist, and it's very, very painful. And this, this is a five-year-old. Um, you try having a sort of sequential conversation like this with a five-year-old. Um, and then he said, OK, so what, what else do you see? What's the next thing you see? And he said, I'm, I'm, lying, um, I'm lying on a bed, except for it's not a bed, it's more like a bench. And they're bandaging up, bandaging up my wrist. And they're saying that I've got to go back in. Yeah, I've got to go back in. And I really don't want to go back in. I really don't want to go back into this. I don't want to, I don't want to be killed and I don't want to kill anybody. I really don't want to go back in. And the, he was getting very upset by them. And... Um, this guy said, okay, well, what do you see next? And he said, I'm now walking back into the battle behind a, a cannon. Um, and I, I re you know, I'm really frightened. I really don't want to go back in. I really don't want to kill people. I don't want to be killed. And this, this guy, it was a very striking thing he said. He just said, okay, so we all live millions of times. And sometimes we have to kill people and sometimes we're killed. And Carol made a very interesting point. She said, you know, here I am with a five-year-old. I, I didn't think he'd make anything of that. And uh, as soon as she said, you know, he was on his, her lap getting sort of more and more upset. And then as soon as he said that, he said, she said, he just completely relaxed and then jumped off her lap and just went off and played. You know how she was like, OK, I've done that. <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a whole world out there for him. So, uh, <laughs> got to go on about it, you know. Um, so it just went off and played. And one of the, you know, there's many striking things from that. And then one of the interesting things, he's got an older sister. And his older sister said, isn't that interesting that he was shot in his wrist? Because um, he'd had this patch of eczema in his wrist since he was born that they couldn't get rid of. And they tried all sorts of things to get rid of it. And it healed, like in the next few days, it healed and never came back. Um, and they're saying, isn't that strange? That's where he said in this thing he was shot. And uh, Padre Toro, you know, a friend of mine, said, oh, what, so what happened next? And he said, the first thing he went and did, he went and bought a drum for the boy and really liked making loud noises. And he's now a drummer. Yeah, he's now a drummer. Wow. You know, and I listened to that and I thought, I have no idea what to do. <laughs> you just, you listen to the story and you listen to Carol's, and she's a very sort of straightforward story. And I don't know what to make of that. I mean, I can't explain it, and I don't want to explain it, and I can't explain it away. It's interesting, because later on in, the, in, in her, their conversation, uh, Vajratara said, you know, how do you know it's not a fantasy? And she said, oh, it's very, very different. With, ch with children, you, when, they, when they're telling a fantasy, 
you know, it, it's much more, it's, it's much <coughs> less clear, it's much less linear. They, they, they put on a different voice. And I remember this with the girls, my partner's children. I remember, you know, when, when they're making up things, you can sort of tell they, they've got a slightly made up makeup voice, you know. She said, when they talk like this, it's much flatter and straighter, yeah. And, and you know, so I also, get, next week I'll talk about uh, Penny Satori, who's talked about near-death experiences, but it's interesting, since I, we had that conversation, I've had quite a lot of emails from people saying, oh yes, I remember having those uh, experiences. Somebody wrote to me saying, oh yes, I remember being killed by a stone by this Roman guy, and I remember telling my mother, you're not my mother. Um, uh, there's a, anyway, so... You know, I don't know what to make of it. What, what strike? What, what? I mean, what Carol Bowman makes of it? She's very convinced. She thinks basically that there is such a thing as reincarnation, that you are reincarnated millions of times. Um, what she, as far as she's concerned, it's it's kind of proven. You know, if you look at the studies, it's pretty much conclusive. She said also it's much commoner than people realise. Um, as I say, I've had people write to me about uh, past life memories. Um, she says it's much, much commoner. Most, most children forget after about the age of five. Most children uh, start to forget. There's a, there's a, there's a, there was a series on Netflix, I can't remember what it was called, but the final one was on. Some of them were actually, I, I found, tr frankly, a bit flaky. In, but the, fi the final one um, was on um, children with near-death experiences. And some, if, one of them, for instance, still remembers because they were in an aircraft that went down in the Second World War and still, as a young man, has flashbacks. To it, but most people forget, um, and uh, she, she's basically convinced. What she's interested in is trauma. You know, the, you know, the, she was very struck by this injury, and you know, she's had her own experiences. Well. I, I'm not sure what I think about that. I, I'm I'm very skeptically minded. Um, I'm not sure what I think about it. it. Might be true, might not be true. I'm not sure what to make of that story. You know. I've not, you know, I'm not, as I say, I'm not coming here as a philosopher who's then looked at all the evidence or a scientist who's looked at all the evidence. Um, there may be other explanations for it. Um, from, a, from a Buddhist point of view, it is, it is both very, very suggestive and rather tricky. Um, I don't know which one to start with. It's rather tricky because if it is, Buddhism doesn't believe in reincarnation strictly. Um, and um, we'll, with this and me, we'll try to wind into rebirth. Um, which way, where should I start? But, you know, if it's reincarnation, the, the, the first obvious problem is what, where, did, where did we all come from? Because, you know, how, how come this, what about the population explosion? That is actually quite problematic. You know, how comes there's much more of us than there were in the past? Where did they come from? You know? So there are, there are all, all sorts of real problems with that, and I'm sure there's many more than I can think of, but that's the obvious one. So what Buddhism teaches then, but it, it's striking because Buddhism teaches rebirth, um, which is different from reincarnation. So as I understand it, the idea of reincarnate, reincarnation is that there's a bit of you that's just you now, that's just Maitrebandu now, or just you now, and yes, you're, but you're a man or a woman, you're black or you're white, you're gay or straight, you're whatever, you know, tall or, th or, or short, you know. And the next, way, next life you get to be, you know, a different gender, a different sex, perhaps a different, you know, 
you sort of transmigrate through the through the world, but are basically sort of as it were the same person. Yeah, Buddhism doesn't believe in that. Uh, the Buddha said that, that that's wrong. It's not true. It, he has a whole list of epithets, which is not, that's not true. Um, but also, the Buddha's, Buddha didn't believe that when you died, that was at the end. In fact, it's very striking because he, he said no to any kind of eternalism, which is basically the idea that you have a part of you now that's eternal, that you usually would think of as a soul, that would either go up to heaven or, in some traditions, go down to hell or some traditions go to purgatory, but would, go th- would be forever. Or, you know, you would be reborn forever. Yeah? Um, the, the Buddha explicitly said that's not true. He had a whole set of epithets why that's not true. But he also said, so someone would say, OK, so when you die, is that the end, completely the end of everything? He goes through the whole set, same set of epithets, not true, it's not helpful, it's not how things really are. But he adds one, which is he says that it's ugly, which is quite striking. So just from that little set, it seems to be that the Buddha said that eternalism, the idea that you carry on forever in some way, heaven or hell or in repeated incarnations, he said that's not true, not helpful, it's not finally how things really are. And he said that's true of the idea that you, you just go into oblivion at death. But he seemed to see that as a slightly more negative because he added this extra epithet that it was ugly as well, um, which would make our generation uh, particularly notable for our ugliness, um, our ugliness of outlook, which is very striking. So there seems to be some other place, which is the Buddha often talked about what he called the middle way, uh, which is nearly always misunderstood, uh, because it always sounds like you have left and right, and then there's something in the middle. It's not that, yeah? So he said, you you have this idea that something goes on forever, and that's wrong. Yeah? Or you have this idea that things are bounded and finite, and when you die, that's the end. And he said, that's not only wrong, it's ugly. Yeah? Um, and it's striking that, because the Buddhist life is, is extremely concerned with uh, beauty. Yeah? Um, and he said once, it's like two fires. The fire of some kind of idea that you go on forever, and even our, do you see that even our basic self-sense, if you're honest with yourself, you, you see yourself age. Sometimes I get a terrible fright when I look in the mirror. Ah, who's that old guy? That's me. Um, I was on a recent a retreat recently, and somebody actually asked, had my hair always been white? Thinking, Who have you ever met whose hair has always been white? Anyway, it's like I'm Father Time or something. Um, anyway, um, right yeah, so you can You've got this idea of, you know, that, so even egotism itself is weirdly, when you're truthful about it, you do actually weirdly think that you go on forever. The Buddha's saying, no, no, that's not true. It's not true in any way now, and it's not true as you go on forever in, and become Mrs. Jones and Mr. Um, you know, whatever. You, know, you don't do that. That's not true either. But then he's saying the other fire is that you think you, when you die, that's it at the end. Uh, he said, that's like another fire, and that's not true either. And he said, we're blinded by those two fires. It's like looking into two bright lights, and you're sort of, sort of blinded by them. You can, to the point which you cannot imagine another alternative. Yeah, do you see what I mean? That you can't 
think there could be anything. It's so bright, these two fires, that you can't imagine another alternative. And he said, the, my middle way is like a star above them. Yeah? If only you could look up, there is a, a middle and, as it were, a higher way. There's some higher resolution. It's interesting, it's also a light, but a star. Some higher resolution at a higher level that is not this blinding light of either I'm going to die, which is probably, for most of us now, are, that's the light we're really looking at. They're like headlights of a car. That's the light we're looking at. And our life is um, stripped of its beauty and meaning and value if we look at that light. Yeah? Because before you know it, you get to what's the point. And before you know it, you get to this nightmare of my actions don't matter, which is increasingly becoming a kind of pseudo-philosophical view which is massively dangerous, yeah? arising out of this terribly bright light of that when you die, that's the end, nothing. Yeah? So you, all you need to do is just have a great time while you're here because it's not going to last very long. So it doesn't really matter how you treat people. If you believe that, try it out and just see what happens if you, you think it doesn't matter how you treat people. Yeah? Um, so the Buddha said there's another way. Yeah? There's a, a star above and beyond that, and it's, it's called his middle way, and he also, and then he teaches this doctrine of rebirth, which we're finally getting onto. Um, <laughs> when do we get onto the subject? Um, and I, I've been delaying it so long because <laughs> I actually don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't. <laughs> basically, these whole seminars, I go on about stuff and everyone goes, "Ooh, wow, wow!" And then I go, "I don't know." Uh, but then I say, "You don't know either." Um, so we're on a completely even footing here. Um, so the Buddha said that. He said all sorts of things about what rebirth was. He says you can't really understand it. But the important thing to remember is it's not one of those two fires yeah, that blind us. Yeah? So one, one of the things that's said is, he says there is continuance, but no thing continues. Yeah? There is continuance, but no thing continues. So, you know, sometimes it's imagined like lives are like um, a wave coming into the ocean and it looks like it moves but we know it's oscillating particles we know there isn't a wave that starts over it looks I mean it looks so much like a wave starts over and comes in and crashes on the floor actually apparently not like that um, it's oscillating particles another met a traditional metaphor for rebirth is that you've got two you know very straight simple apparently simple metaphor is you've got these two piles of logs and one is on, on fire again and just before it goes out, a spark from that fire leaps across and lights another fire. Okay. So, do you see what I mean? It's, there is continuance, but no thing continues. So, it's not the same pile of logs. So, it's not me. It's not like a me log, which is saved. And you know, it's a spark. But the metaphor metaphors say so much. And one of the one of the things you're trying to do in Buddhist practice is understand the nature of metaphor because that gets you closer to the nature of reality. The metaphor is that a spark jumps across. So is that personal or impersonal? So you go back to Carol Bowman's son, it's clearly personal. There's problems if you push that too far, I think. Yeah? I, I, I can't be as certain as she is. Um, I'm very open, more and more open to the idea of rebirth, but I can't be certain. Um, that also means, frankly, folks, you can't be, you can't say it's not true. 
Um, in fact, there's very little you can say is not true. Um, so is so it, a spark jumps across. So is that is that me or not? Yeah. So it seems to suggest the metaphor. There is continuance, but no thing continues. Yeah. So there isn't a bit of you now that is just you, which is thing-like, which puts on another body like a suit of clothes and becomes a next person. And yet, it's not the other thing that people think about rebirth is that it's like, you know, sort of you just go into, um, you're like a lump of porridge that bobbles up and then you bobble back down into the porridge. Not a very nice metaphor. It's not a traditional metaphor. That, um, um, you know, self arises and just goes back into this sort of impersonal slime, you know, or porridge. Yeah? Um, that, that, I think, is too, too impersonal. It's a bit like, you know how some people think you continue in your children and your children's children. It's a bit like saying that, that there is continuance, but it's, some people say continuance in your genes, um, continuance in your children, and continuance in people who have loved you. The Buddha isn't saying that either. It's not rationalistic like that. He seems to be trying to point that there's something, some, there is some continuance which, which seems to be out, and I don't know, but seems to be out to be both unique and personal and impersonal and, as it were, universal. I now, now no longer talk, know what I'm talking about. But it, do you see, how, in other words, I'm trying to say we can go wrong both ways. You can either say, it's me. The Buddha's clearly saying, that's not true. It's not you. Yeah? But if, then you say, okay, fine, it's not me. And then the Buddha say, no, no, that's, that's not right either. So you think, what am I doing? <laughs> you can see it's like the two, it's a brilliant metaphor, isn't it? These two fires. You can only look at one fire. So it's that, isn't it? No. So it's like, oh, so, so it's that then? No. The Buddha saying, look, there's something else. Now, the only way you can start to experience that something else is to work with your mind. Yeah? I, I cannot be certain and I won't be certain because um, I don't believe that certainty is a, a possibility in this life. I, 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 I don't think that certainty is a reality. I think as soon as people talk about certainty, they've gone into fiction. Human life, you know, for heaven's sake, of all the things it doesn't do, it doesn't do is it doesn't offer you certainty, and Buddhism doesn't offer you certainty. What Buddhism offers you is a path, yeah, primarily a path of growth, so that you can come to understand things for yourself. But that understanding is not primarily a cognitive one, although it includes that. It's um, a direct vision of the truth, yeah. You need what Buddhism is offering you is a path of human evolution where your mind, remember we don't know what that is, your consciousness, remember we don't know what that is, is becomes to such a point where it can apprehend the nature of reality itself, like at a glance. Yeah? And the Buddha, the figure on the shrine, has become reality. As soon as you see reality, you become reality. Um, interestingly, in the enlightened experience, what the Buddha does is talks about all his previous lives, which feels very like uh, Carol Bowman talking about her son. Yeah, uh, I, you know, he says, you know, and then I was born in such and such a place, and I ate these. It's all a bit formulaic because it's two and a half thousand years old and has gone through lots of editors, but, um, <laughs> of some kind. But you know, um, 
I, I, I was born in such and such a place, I ate this sort of food, and then I died in this sort of place. Yeah? Very like Carol Bowman's son. Yeah? Um, very like all these stories about children. But it's much more, it must be more mysterious than that. Or, I don't know, I'm now getting to the end. Of, luckily, we've nearly got to the end. Um, we're going to be exploring this much more on this retreat. Um, because there's a lot more to say, because we, we haven't touched on this question of karma. But I don't want to finish with theory. I want to see if we can, we'll just go a little bit over time. I want to just go back into meditation again. With this imaginative thought that perhaps my life is not bounded by death. Perhaps the drama of my life, and I'll, I'd like to touch more on this because so much to say, but perhaps some of the drama of my life extends through lives. That, that is a Buddhist view, a very straightforward Buddhist view. A traditional Buddhist wouldn't find any problem with that at all. That you've had lives before and you're going to have lives in the future and what you're learning now is vital for the future. So let's just play with that idea. I don't know whether it's true or not, but nor do you. So let's have a... Have a go. <laughs> 